Thank you for listening to the Reformation Bible Church podcast. We hope you are edified and encouraged by our ministry as you listen to our Gospel of John sermon series. For more sermons and resources, please visit the RBC website at www.rbcbakersfield.org. Thank you once again, and may the Lord bless you. Our Lord and our God, we thank you for your grace. Thank you for mercy. Thank you for bringing us this morning to hear your word. And that is what we pray for this morning, that you would give us ears to hear and hearts to believe. We pray, God, that as your word goes forward, that what we are not, you would make us. God, we pray that strength, courage, and ultimately bowing to the sovereign will and and purpose of our God and in his word would be our final our final decision this morning. Our final place of resting would be at the sovereign will and purpose of God and his word. Lord, I pray that you would use me this morning for your honor and glory, that I would decrease so that you may increase, that I would become less so that you can become more, that you would be glorified in all that is said this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I do want to, once again, thank you for joining us on this Lord's Day. We are continuing our exposition of the Gospel of John. The last time that we were together in the Gospel of John, chapter 12, you can turn there, we saw the last and final plea of the Lord Jesus Christ as he called all who have ears to hear, who had ears to hear, to believe in him. As we mentioned, or as was mentioned last week, the plea would be the last and final time that the Lord Jesus Christ would make to this general audience. It would be the last general invitation that Christ would make to this public people. He was calling them to come and to be saved. And again, This would be the last time that they would be exposed to the light and would have an opportunity from Christ to come to the light. John 12, 35, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. Jesus encourages his hearers, believe in the light so that you may become sons of light. The time was quickly approaching, just a few days now, when Christ would go out of this world and return to the glory of the Father, or return to his glory with the Father. The light would essentially be going out soon. Christ also calls you, walk while you have light. If you're hearing the truth, believe. Trust in Christ for your salvation. Turn from your sins. This would also be the last time that Christ would be speaking openly and freely to the crowds. The next time that we see Christ in the midst of a crowd, he will be in the midst of a crowd that is falsely accusing him of being a blasphemer. And they will purpose to put him to death. Although the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ would carry on and countless numbers would come to believe in him, for many, the words that proceeded from the giver of life, To come and believe would be the last opportunity that they had to respond to the invitation from Christ himself 
to come and be saved. Today, in the last 13 verses of this chapter, we will see four points. The departure of Christ, the hard heart of people, nominal Christianity, and the purpose of Christ's coming. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. John chapter 12, verses 36 through 50. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the word by the prophet spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe for Isaiah said he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart. Lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many of them, many of even the authorities believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Verse 44. And Jesus cried out and said, whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever believes me sees him who sent me. And I have come into into the world as light so that those so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me does not receive my words as has a judge and who does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the father who sent me has himself given me a commandment. What to say and what to speak. And I know what his commandment is eternal life, that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say, as the Father has told me, may God add a blessing to the reading of his word. You may be seated this morning. Number one, the departure of Christ. If you're taking notes, number one, the departure of Christ. Verse 36, when Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Now, we do not know exactly what day it is when these ominous words from Jesus came. But we do know this. These words appear to be a once and for all opportunity for those who were hearing Jesus. Meaning this. This would be the last time. A once and for all opportunity for those who are hearing the words of Jesus. To respond to the words of Jesus. Because after this statement. The Bible says that Jesus hid himself or concealed himself from the people. Brothers and sisters, do not think that it is a small thing when the Bible says when Jesus had said these things, listen, he departed and hid himself from them. You may ask yourself, first of all, what has he said? Verse 23 of that same chapter, the hour has come for the son of man to be glorified. What else has he said? Verse 25, whoever loves his life loses it and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. What else has he said? Verse 27, 
Now my soul is troubled. But what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. No, but it was for this purpose that I have come to this hour. Verse 31. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of the world be cast out. And when I am lifted up, he says, from the earth will draw all people to myself. What has he said? Well, he has said enough. He has said everything that he has needed to say. Jesus, essentially, brothers and sisters, has said enough. He is done with the crowds. Now, finally, the time has come. Now, finally, the hour is at hand. And it is also the time or the hour for the people, meaning this, that just as Christ's time is up, so their time is also up. He has said to the crowds all that they have needed to hear. He has spoken exactly what the Father has commanded him to say. He has done all that the Father has commanded him to do. Among the crowds, there was nothing left for him to say. We know that there was the cross ahead of him, but besides the cross, there was nothing left for them to see. They have been given all of the evidence of who he is. They have heard all of the truth that they needed to hear concerning who he is. And before the Lord Jesus Christ departs and hides himself, He leaves them with these words. Verse 36. While you have light. Believe in the light. That you may become sons of light. What is this? It is one final plea. One final call. One final invitation. For people to believe and to be saved. And upon that one final plea. Christ does something that would shock most of his hearers. Listen. He leaves. He not only leaves, but he conceals himself, meaning he hides himself from who? From people. He is done. Never again to appear to them in that kind of fashion. Never again to go out to the people and say one more time, I will say, come to me. Instead, he's done. The next time they will see him. He will be presented as a blasphemer, one who is against God. But for now, at this particular moment, Christ not only leaves, but he hides himself. He is done. They have had all of the chances that they are going to get to believe. They have heard all of the great truths from the mouth of the one who shaped and formed them. They have seen all of the great works from the one who created the entire world. Did he not multiply the food for the multitudes? Did he not heal the sick and give sight to the blind? Did he not give or repair limbs and did he not raise the dead? Of course he did. He need not give them another sign. Another sign would do no good. He need not say to them another word. All that he needed to say was already said. No, brothers and sisters, Christ was done. How can he be done? Someone may ask. How can this Jesus hide himself? This is not what Jesus does. He does not give up on people. He stands at the door and he knocks at their door. Does he not? And does he not stand at the door and beg for them to open so that he may come in with them? Isn't that what you've been taught about Christ? Isn't that what you've been taught? That he doesn't give up on people. He knocks at their door. He Begs and he pleads at their doors, please open the door. 
Some have also been taught that he knocks at the door ever so gently, just hoping that you will open. No, brothers and sisters, he is not knocking at the door as some would like for you to believe. He's not standing at the door of the hearts, listen, of unbelievers, knocking with the hopes that they will one day open the door and let him in. And then when they do open or should they open the door, he will not say to them with a sigh, finally, I was beginning to think you were were never going to open up. That is not the way the Lord regenerates hearts. They have all heard his words. They have all seen his works. He He is not standing at the door of their heart, knocking, hoping that they will enter. That is not how the Lord regenerates or saves sinners from their sins. He's not standing and knocking. And if you open, then you're saved. You were not saved because you repeated some kind of prayer and now the deal has been sealed. No. The Bible tells us how the Lord regenerates hearts. Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 26. And I, the Lord, will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit within you. He says, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. He says, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you. He causes you to walk in my his statutes, to be careful, to obey his rules. How does the Lord save? The Lord regenerates or saves a hard hearted person by the power of the Holy Spirit, working in the hearts of hard hearted rebels, you and I. Overcoming our rebellious wills so that we can repent and believe in Christ. He takes the heart of stone and gives us, those who believe in Christ, a, a heart of flesh so that we can believe. He puts his spirit within us and causes us to walk in his ways. It is not the work of man that causes a man to come to Christ. It is the work of God. Through the power of the Holy Spirit that causes a man to come to Christ. He does not stand at the door of the unbeliever, hoping that the unbeliever will come and and answer the door and let him in. Rather, he comes to the tomb of dead sinners. And he rolls away the stone. And he commands them to come forward. And they come. There is no person on the there is no dead sinner on the inside thinking about struggling with whether or not they are going to open the door and let Christ in. How can a dead man get up to open the door? No, the dead sinner lays dead in his tomb and it is Christ who comes and sovereignly removes the stone and sovereignly calls that person by name and sovereignly gives him graciously gives him grace and faith to believe. This is the work of God. And we, wrapped in death that used to bind us, are called by Christ and by the power of Christ. He unbinds us and lets us loose. He changes our wills. He sanctifies us and calls us out of darkness that used to have us bound. He does not wait for us to come and open a door. If that were the case then you would have some kind of merit in your salvation. You would have some kind of part in your salvation because, by the way, you did open the door, right? No. Again, how does the dead man even get up to open the door? No, Christ stands before our graves. Christ rolls away the stone. Christ bids us to come forward and so that Christ can receive all the praise and the glory and the honor. What does he say? 
He says in John 15, 19, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and to bear fruit. This is God's work. I know that some of you may be thinking, well, then what of the knocking scripture that is clearly found in, in the Bible? Where is it found, I may ask you? To whom is Christ speaking, I may ask you? Revelation chapter 3, verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to, to him and eat with him and he with me. Whose door is Christ standing and knocking at? Friend, Christ is not standing at the door and knocking at the heart of the unbeliever. But rather, Christ is standing at the door of the church of Laodicea. And he is calling them to repent and turn from their sin that they are living in because they are not being a good witness to the unbelieving world. Christ is speaking to one of the seven churches in Asia Minor. And he is calling them out of apostasy and calling them to be the true believers that he knows that they really are. He's welcoming them back into fellowship and communion with him. He's not speaking to unbelievers. He's speaking to believers. Turn from your sin. This is not who you are. Revelation, and to finish, he says, and he who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I hope they just shattered one of your false idols. In John chapter 12, Jesus has accomplished what he was supposed to accomplish among the people. He is now done. He not only departs, he hides himself. That's how done he is. You ever been angry with someone that you don't even want them to know where you're going? That's how done he is. He has given the general call of the gospel. Repent and turn from your sins. Trust in the sun. Turn from the darkness and turn to the light. He is the bread of life. Those who come to him will never hunger. He is he is the water of life. Those who come to him will never thirst again. And you people. You have had your chance. Now. You will no longer find him. Why is this important? Number two, the hard heart of unbelievers or of people. Verse 37, though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their hearts. And I, in turn, I would heal them. Let's begin with the beginning of this passage. Verse 37. Though he had done so many signs before them. Listen. They still did not believe in him. Up until, appear, up until the appearing of Christ. Listen. The people had only read of the miracles performed by the prophets. They had never seen anything close to a miracle themselves besides the miracle of birth. Then comes Jesus. And he does not just perform one miracle. Jesus is, in essence, performing a, a miracle a day. Let's just say every single day there's a miracle happening by Jesus. And the Bible tells us in John 21, 25. Now, there were also many other things that Jesus did for every one of them to be written. I suppose the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. If we were to assume that Christ performed a miracle every single day in the three and a half years that Jesus was ministering. That would be 1,257 miracles. 
1,257 miracles if he just did one a day. Let's assume that he did two. I'm not a good mathematician, so you figure it out. Let's assume that he did three. Do you see the numbers rising? And in spite of the, the, numer- the, the, the countless miracles that are happening before these people, they still did not believe. It was not enough. Curing diseases, healing the sick, giving sight to people that were born blind, raising the dead. And yet every single one of these miracles was not enough to convince them to believe in Christ. There are many unbelievers who make the claim that if they were to see some kind of miracle, they would believe in Christ. There was an atheist, uh, the atheist Dr. Michael Newdow, in his debate against a pastor called Cliff Konechley. He made the claim during the de- their debate. I will believe in Jesus, he says, if Jesus appears to me right here on the stage. Here I am, Jesus. I'm waiting. Come down, he said. And there was no coming of Christ. His response, as the crowd waited, anticipating the, 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 the appearing of Christ or some kind of dust falling from the ground or from the sky. His response, surprise, surprise. Why won't he show himself? Because he can't. Because he doesn't exist, Dr. Michael Newdow says. Brothers and sisters, if Christ did appear to Michael Newdow on that stage, he still would not believe. Because, not because he didn't have enough evidence to believe. The Bible says in Romans 1.20, for what can be known about God is made plain to them. Because God has shown it to them. His invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God, nor give thanks to him. Not Dr. Newdow and every other person who asked For more evidence does not need more evidence. They've been given all of the evidence that they'll ever need because God has clearly revealed himself to them in the world that they live in. God has clearly revealed himself to them in their consciences. God has clearly revealed himself to them in his word. And God has clearly revealed himself to them in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. No, belief does not come on account of miracles, brothers and sisters. Belief comes nothing less, through nothing less short of then God giving you a new heart and God giving you a new mind. Somebody, you, you know people that are in your family that have had a complete change of life. And yet, although there is evidence standing before you of the work and the majesty of God, the power of God, it still is not enough. People that you know were once devils who now live like angels is still not enough for you to turn to Christ. Because it is not in seeing miracles. It is not in seeing works. It is in the work of the Holy Spirit upon the life of an unbeliever that only a person can come and be saved. If it was Nicodemus who came to Christ and he did not deny the works of Christ as being from God and the teachings of Christ as being from God. But there was one pressing question on his mind. And here it is. How am I saved? How will I see the kingdom of God? And Christ, because he knows all men, read the mind of this man. And he says to Nicodemus, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Puzzled by this response, Nicodemus says, how can a man be born again when he is old? 
How is this the way to salvation? Or in, in essence, how can this be accomplished? You are pointing me toward a dead end. Precisely. It's not something that you can do on your own. It's something that Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit, can do. It's not in seeing miracles. It's not in you working or, 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 or doing more efforts. It's in God doing a work and effort in you that you are saved. He says in verse, uh, verse 5 of that same chapter, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Listen, that which is born of flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the spirit his spirit. Don't be confused at what Jesus is saying in verse 8. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it's going. Can you turn the air on back there? So it is with everyone who was born of the spirit. You can't control it. God controls it. Go outside today and try to tell the wind to go left instead of right. It will blow right through and past you because you have no power over it. So it is with the work and power of the Holy Spirit upon those whom he chooses to redeem. You have no control over the sovereign work of God. It is the work of God to save. And brothers and sisters, it is the sovereign work of God. Listen, to leave people in their unbelief. A miracle may leave someone in shock. A miracle may leave someone in awe. It may leave someone in, in, in excitement. And it could ultimately leave them still in unbelief. That is exactly what is happening here. Jesus, he left. He's done. And what does he do? In his leaving, he also leaves people in unbelief. Imagine. The one who is known as Savior decides, I'm not saving you. This may sound like a shock. It may not sound like the Jesus that we are accustomed to, but this is the Jesus of the Bible. Let us not be surprised by this. The, abandon, the abandonment of Jesus reveals, listen, the justice of God. And unbelief of people reveals the mighty foundational doctrine of the radical corruption and depravity of man. J.C. Ryle says, how feebly we grasp and realize that doctrine is proved by our, surmi- our surprise at, actimi- at, in, at human incredulity. We only have belief, we only half believe in the heart's deceitfulness. We only half believe that. Let us read our Bible more attentively. And search their contents more carefully. Even when Christ wrought miracles and preached sermons, there were numbers of his hearers who remained utterly unmoved. Can you imagine hearing the words of Christ preached into your ears, seeing the miracles of Christ done before your eyes and still utterly unmoved? I'm not surprised when you're utterly unmoved by me. But imagine if Christ was preaching and you were utterly unmoved. What is this evidence of? Is the evidence of the corruption of man's heart and man's mind. 
What else can it conclude or what else can we conclude that man? But that man is utterly lost in sin and that even upon hearing the giver of life to call them to salvation, they still respond in unbelief. Brothers and sisters, this is the hardness of man's heart. This is the heart that was corrupted at the fall, the mind that is on evil all the time, the mouths who are the mouth who is open graves, the mouths that are open graves the path that is ruin and misery, the person who does not fear God. It was these people that Christ left in their unbelief. Why? You must ask yourself, why? Yes, they are corrupted. But John points to another fact. It was to fulfill that which was spoken by Isaiah in chapter 53, verse 1. Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us. Listen. And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Do you hear that? What was the response of the people in spite of the countless miracles and words that were coming from Jesus? They ultimately did not believe. Why? Because God sovereignly chose not to give them ears to hear. Did you hear that? Or because God sovereignly elected not to elect them. And in order to clarify what the Apostle John means, in order for John to to point out to his readers, just in case you're missing my point, let me point you to another prophecy that's fulfilled by Isaiah or by Jesus in Isaiah chapter 6 verse 10. Therefore, they could not believe. Because of what God sovereignly chose to do, they could not believe. For Isaiah says... God, he has blinded their eyes. God, he has hardened their hearts. Who did? God did. Are you reading what I'm reading? Are you staring at it's in your It's in your book. You should read it. Just look at it there. It's not here. It's there. Go ahead. They could not believe. For Isaiah said, he, God has blinded their eyes and God has hardened their hearts. Why? Lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart. And what would be the response of God? And in turn, God, I would heal them. If they understand, they believe and God heals. If they see, then God has given them sight and they believe. But God has chosen not to allow them to see, and God has chosen not to allow them to hear. Isaiah saw these, said these things because he saw the glory of God. In spite of the signs, people could not believe. How could they believe on their own? We have already established that it is is the sovereign work of God that regenerates a heart. So when Jesus leaves these people for the final time, When Jesus, for the last time, invites the people with the general call of the gospel, John points out that there are still people there who did not believe because they couldn't believe. Did you get that? They're still unbelieving because God would not allow them to believe. Because God chose to leave them in their unbelief. Because of the corruption of man, we hate God. Because of the depravity of man, we do not seek for God. We want nothing to do with God. If if God 
if it was not for the gracious work of God upon our hearts, then, friends, we would neither seek him nor call out to him. Romans 3.10, no one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. Listen, no one seeks for God. God in his justice, meaning God displaying one of his divine attributes, allows sinful man to continue to pursue that which his heart naturally wants. His sin. God essentially allows those who have a hard heart to continue in their hard heartedness. Because that's what they want. That's what you and I want apart from the sovereign, gracious work of God changing our hearts. If it were not for that, then we would be among those people who saw the works of Christ and heard the words of Christ and still stayed utterly unmoved. Which is why when we come to worship, you should be singing as loud as you can because he has not done that for everyone. Which is why when you share the gospel, you should be so joyous about it, so vigilant about it, because you realize he's done something for you that he does not do for every single person. God hardened their hearts, meaning that God took his hand off of that person and allowed them to continue in the sin that they desire. Go for it. Romans says God gave them up to a debased mind. To do the things that ought not to be done. But that's the thing that they want. So go. God has blinded their eyes. Simply by not giving them sight. And giving them the freedom to walk in darkness. While at the same time they believe that they can see. Because of their hard heart. Do you know people like that who believe that they're just fine? Who believe that they are, are, are doing just fine? Who, who believe that they can see just fine? And you see you are so blind. You are so lost. What did Jesus say to the religious leaders after healing the blind man? For judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see and those who see may become blind. And they were offended at this and said, are you saying that we are blind? Are you insinuating that we could not see? Verse 41, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. Their hearts were hardened. They were allowed to continue in their blindness, and God purposely chose to lead them there. In the same way, these people were left in their unbelief. One may say, that doesn't sound fair that God would do that. Friends, do you want to talk about fair? Do you really want to talk about what we really deserve? Do you really want to talk about what is fair with God? Then let's talk about that. What's fair is that we deserve death. What's fair is that we deserve eternal separation from a holy God. What's fair is that we deserve to be crucified over and over and over again. That's what's fair. No, my dear friends, we do not want to discuss fairness with God. We do not want to discuss what we deserve. Because we did not deserve the sinless one of God to come from glory, to die on the behalf of sinners. We did not deserve to have our names written on his hand from eternity past. We did not deserve to have the grace and the faith that was given to us to believe. But God displayed his mercy in choosing to save sinners from a house that they set on fire. And God in his justice chooses to leave some of those sinners in the house that they set on fire. We violated God. God has not violated us. Do you get that? We owe him. He, don't, he, he does not owe us. 
It is by sheer grace that Christ came to pay the debt that you and I would never be able to pay. And in this case, the justice of God is displayed in the fact that he left. And he left them in their unbelief. One may say, then if it is up to God, then why am I punished? He left me in my sin. Paul has an answer for you. Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Another version says, who do you think you are to talk to God that way? Will not the molder, the molded say to its molder, why have you, will the molder say to the, will the molded say to the molder, why have you made me this way? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out the same, out of the same lump of clay, one vessel for honor and one vessel for dishonor? What does that mean? God can do whatever he wants to do because he's God and you're not. When you get your own universe, then you can start calling the shots. God has the right to do as he wills. And again, in this case, he left some in unbelief and he is justified in doing so. And then John, as if contrasting two sad cases of unbelief, points to another group of unbelievers. Number three, the nominal Christians. Verse 42 Nevertheless, many of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Do you know what the word nominal means? You may have heard us say that word nominal or nominal Christian or that people grow up with parents who were nominal believers Nominal simply means by name. Nominal means small. Nominal believes or uh, means below the real value or the real cost. These men were nominal believers. Second Timothy three five describes these kind of people as having a form of godliness, but lacking its true power. At first glance, we, we may be tempted to, to feel sympathy for these men who had some form of belief that Jesus was the Messiah. But then your temptation to feel sympathy should quickly fade away when you read the ending. That they did not confess their belief because they were afraid of men. Not only that, but because they loved the glory of men more than the glory of God. These were not uncommon men because we, too, live among nominal Christians. We, too, live among shallow believers who claim to believe in the same God that you believe in, to have the same kind of faith that you have. And yet their lives look completely different than yours. They work with you. They're your friends and they're your relatives. They may claim to possess the same kind of faith that you have in Christ, but they do not. They will go as far as confessing Christ with their mouths, but they will not take up their crosses and die to themselves and this world. They love this world too much. And there may be some nominal Christians in here this morning who are here and you are hearing the words that are coming out of my mouth. But yet you will walk away just as valueless with your with your belief in Christ as you came in. You will continue in your claiming Christ, but not dying for Christ. You will continue in your claiming Christ, but not living for Christ. You will claim that you still have faith in this Christ, but you will never share this faith. 
and you will die thinking that you are okay, only to stand before God, the risen Lord who will say to you, depart from me, I never knew you. You will say, but I cast out many demons in your name and did many works in your name. And he will say, once again, I never knew you. J.C. Ryle says, they know they are not living up to their light. But the fear of man keeps them back. They're afraid of being laughed at, jeered at, and despised by the world. They dread losing the good opinion of society and the favorable judgment of men and women like themselves. They go on from year to year secretly at ease and dissatisfied with themselves. Listen to this. Knowing too much religion to be happy in the world. And clinging too much to to the world to enjoy any kind of religion. Oh, what a sad case. I know too much to really be happy out here, although I'm trying. And I love the world too much to really be in here and completely be sold out. Brothers and sisters, there is only one cure for that kind of heart that beats in such a way. And that is that Christ would conquer their hearts completely and give them true faith to die to this world and to all of the things that this world offers. So let us be vigilant in praying for them. Let us be vigilant in praying for nominal believers. Let us call them out. Let us call those who claim Christ but do not live for Christ. Let us call them out. Almost as if Christ did walk while you still have the light because there will be a day when the light goes out and you will have no more opportunities. You can't get saved on your way to heaven. It will be done. It will be over. There will be no trumpet sound and you say, "Okay, now it's time for me to receive Christ before he comes. It will be too late then. Let us share with us with them the sweetness of walking with Christ and the joy that comes from Our salvation. Fourth and finally, the purpose of Christ. Verse 44 through 50. Whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me or sees me, sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the father who sent me has himself given me a commandment and what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the father has told me. There seems to be a little bit of a mystery in this passage among theologians as to when this took place, because Christ has just been we've just been told that Christ has left and departed and hid himself. And then all of a sudden we have this verse. There are some who believe that Jesus cries out loud as he departs, almost as saying, I told you as he's walking away. There are others who say that this should be at the end of, of the verse 36 and it's kind of misplaced and whatever the case may be. In this passage, we see the purpose of Christ's coming. He's come to save those who believe. This is a, a repeat of what Christ has continually said. But in this passage, the simple question is this. Have you believed? Have you placed your faith in Christ? Have you forsaken any attempts to save yourself from your sin 
And have you placed all of your hope, all of your trust in Christ for your salvation? Have you repented of sin? Have you been so united with Christ that his life is your life, his death is your death, and his resurrection is your resurrection? And if so, then I welcome you this morning to his table. To fellowship with him in, in a sincere and real way. I shared with those at our last membership class that Christ is with you at this table in a special way. And that there are many moments in our Christian life in which Christ is with us in a special and unique way. The Bible says that we, when we are practicing church discipline, Jesus promises where two or three are among you, I am there. Jesus promises that he is with us when we are sharing the gospel and making disciples. Behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age. And in the same way that when we fellowship with Christ at his table, he is with us in a special and unique way. So I welcome you this morning to come and fellowship with your Savior. I welcome you this morning to come and celebrate what he has accomplished on your and my behalf. Brothers and sisters, again, he does not do this for everyone. So when you come to this table, celebrate that he has allowed you the privilege of having a shadow of what will be real one day. You fellowshipping with Christ face to face. Let us stand.